Welcome to Walk in Truth. These are the Bible teachings of Pastor Michael Lance, equipping you to reach out with God's truth to all people and how to apply that truth to today's issues, trends, and culture. Learn more about the program and our ministry when you visit walkintruth.com. Now here's Pastor Michael's teaching in Hebrews chapter 6, 13 through 20, called We Have This Hope as an Anchor for Our Soul. We are looking at the idea of the anchor, this hope we have as the anchor of our souls. Uh, I had done a little promo on social media that some of you may have seen, and I often see the providential hand of God as we are moving verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Something happens in our country or in the world, and here we are uh, at a very important text that I think will give us some perspective about how do we deal with times like these and What do we do as the church? We do know that we've come up here before. I've stood up here before many times with some of you for decades now through trials and tribulations in different parts of the world in our country, school shootings and the like. I told people in the prayer uh, time before that I've lost track of how many things have happened in my pastorate. Um, It seems like I'm grieving over one and praying over one and then another one comes and I forget the one that happened a week ago. Uh, I will say what happened in Nashville is a, is a terrible tragedy. Um, we've seen this before. We've seen some people go into churches before and, and target specifically Christians. And uh, it's very sad when that happens. It's nothing new, though. Um, this has been really the, um, in some ways, the job description of the church has been to endure hostility from an unbelieving world. Now, we don't, we don't want to bring it to ourselves. We don't want uh, to offend just to offend. But we know that what Jesus said about who we are and what we stand for and what that might bring in terms of the hostility of the world. And so here we are. We're looking at Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. As we often do, let's read the whole text um, for The full context, we'll come back and break it down. And if you're able to stand, why don't you stand with us for the reading of God's word. The writer in verse 13 of Hebrews 6 says these words, when God, 613 of Hebrews, made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you, 615. And so having patiently waited, he, Abraham, obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, that's our title for tonight, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Heavenly Father, as we jump into your word now, thank you for this text tonight. I know it has a lot to say to current events, but it has a lot to say for the history of the church. As this little Hebrew group of believers uh, was storm-tossed 
and they needed encouragement. So do we tonight. So help us understand the text, rest in it, and also apply it for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the, if you live long enough, you know the sea of life is not very calm. And uh, there are, it seems like the times when the, the water is glassy and the times are smooth uh, see, can be rare. Uh, this world, Job said, you know, man was born for trouble in this world as sparks fly upward. And we kind of know uh, as we live long enough that inevitably these times come. Sometimes they're heavier than other times. And you know, I had mentioned to you the Nashville shooting, but if I had come months before this, I could mention something else or two or three things that have happened. Because this world is a troublesome world. It's a fallen world. And if you decide that you are going to bank, put all your eggs in the basket of this world, you're in deep trouble. Because it is a fallen world. And, and as much as the gospel permeates areas of the world, things do become better. And that's always our hope, the light of the gospel. And so when things like this happen, and what was happening to this first century church was causing them trouble. We know some people had apostatized. Some people, that was last week, had fallen away from the faith. Others were sluggish um, and had stepped back. And so this, in many ways, this congregation was reeling And perhaps they were asking questions like this. Is there something in this world that I can really bank on? Is there something that I can really build my life upon? The world has disappointments. People can disappoint. Situations disappoint. And this particular church was under a storm of persecution. And they didn't know what to do. Many of them didn't know where to turn. Some of them were being persecuted specifically because of their belief in Jesus Christ. And so the uh, writer uses an image that was actually around probably the main image or one of the main images for the believing community for the first 300 years of the church or so. And the image was an anchor. It wasn't a cross in the early centuries of the church. It was actually an anchor. And also a fish was very prominent. Christians who lived in the Roman world, sometimes to identify one another, one would swipe like this and the other one would swipe like that and they would complete a fish and that would be an acknowledgement without words that they were both believers and could talk about Christ uh, in the Roman world. In certain areas, it was obviously very difficult to be a Christian. But the anchor became a very strong symbol in the early times of the church. It's mentioned here, And I don't think it's hard for us to understand why. An anchor, uh, when it's thrown down in a ship, is to kind of stabilize you or steady you in a storm and keep the vessel where it's supposed to be. And so the anchor became this major Christian symbol. In fact, epitaphs uh, on believers' tombs date as far back as the end of the first century, frequently displaying anchors along messages of hope on gravestones. Such expressions of accompanied by something like peace be with you speak to the hope Christians felt as they anticipated being with the Lord. Archaeologists found about 70 examples of these kind of messages in one cemetery alone. And so given its power, why did the anchor fade from use? Scholars have found only a few examples dating as late as the middle of the third century, none after 300 AD. 
The most common explanation is that the empire went from persecuting the church to sponsoring it. Christians no longer needed secret symbols to identify themselves. Constantine's cross, conquering cross, replaced the anchor as a source of encouragement to believers in troubled waters. Oftentimes when the anchor was shown in some of these symbols, there would be an E above it. And the E above it is the Greek word, uh, probably representing the Greek word elpis. It's the word hope in the New Testament. And so sometimes the E would be there with an anchor to say our hope is the anchor of our souls. And of course that hope is in Christ. The hope of the Bible, the word elpis, E-L-P-I-S in Greek, is not I hope so. I hope my team wins. I hope it's going to be sunny tomorrow. It's basically just means I know it's just a matter of timing or a matter of when it will happen. We saw one more nautical image I want to put the two together together for you in Hebrews chapter 4. Take a look at verse 16. This was an earlier study we did. Hebrews 4.16 says, Therefore, let us, church, draw near with confidence, 4.16, to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace. The word words to help is a single Greek word, bothea, in time of need. It's also a nautical image, and it's one for frapping. Frapping was when they would run cords uh, or ropes along the hull of a ship to stabilize it in a storm. And so we have two nautical images, or images from the sea or sailing. One, that Jesus lends help to stabilize our vessel in the storm. He doesn't always pull us out of the storm, but he makes sure we're strong enough to make it through. And then the second is the anchor, which would be thrown off the ship to kind of park it in stormy waters. Both of them taken together are a beautiful image of what Jesus does for us. He'll stabilize us in the storm. He'll anchor us so that we can, you know, take on the storm winds and pray that we don't, you know, get blown over. And so this is the anchor image, and we'll pick it up a little bit more as we go through. The word for in Hebrews 6.13 is a connecting word. It takes us back to the previous section where the writer said these words, God 6.10 of Hebrews is not unjust to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name and having ministered and in still ministering to the saints, 6.11. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made the promise to Abraham, there's the link, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Now the quotation that you see in verse 13 is actually a quote from Genesis 22, specifically verse 16. And God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis 22 in the light of a great act that Abraham did. Abraham took his son, his only son that he loved, and he went to Mount Moriah and he went there to offer him as a burnt offering to God. Now, I think I'm uh, looking out into a room filled with people who are quite aware of that story. And Hebrew believers, Hebrew Christians in the first century who saw that quote would immediately know the story and immediately know the context. And that was that Abraham was asked to sacrifice his son to God on a mountain 
which would now be known as the Temple Mount. You'll hear more from Pastor Michael in a moment. Would you please consider supporting Walk in Truth being on this radio station and podcast for at least $5 a month? And visit walkintruth.com to give. As a thank you, we'll send you more content from Pastor Michael and the Walk in Truth team. And you will get this content through our new Walk in Truth app. You will have quick access to our daily episodes. You can watch videos of Pastor Michael's most recent Sunday sermons and access to our bonus podcast and video series, A Step Closer. This month's series is called An Invitation to Intimacy, a look at intimacy in marriage through the Song of Solomon. That's how I showed my anger. Mm. Not in words, but in, you can't have me. Mm. And that took a toll in our relationship. Even for me, in a church that didn't shy away from it, it wasn't talked about a ton, but I remember getting married and my wife and I being like, this is weird. Like, so good now, I guess. (laughs) There was infidelity, just a lot of financial issues, you know, all those things that make the top list of of why a marriage is hard. The Lord's given us all things to enjoy, the the scriptures say, and freedom is a big word as a Christian. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, what's happened in the church is that the church has not always sent a message that we're supposed to enjoy life and be free. We've put a lot of unnecessary weights on people. All this and more is available to you on our new Walk in Truth app as a thank you for your financial gift. Please become a financial partner of at least $5 a month. Visit walkintruth.com. That's walkintruth.com. We'd love to see who's listening. So please connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Just do a search for Walkin' Truth Show. Now, back to Pastor Michael Lance, right here on Walkin' Truth. Since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Now, the quotation that you see in verse 13 is actually a quote from Genesis 22, specifically verse 16. And God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis 22 in the light of a great act that Abraham did. Abraham took his son, his only son that he loved, and he went to Mount Moriah and he went there to offer him as a burnt offering to God. Now I think I'm uh, looking out into a room filled with people who are quite aware of that story. And Hebrew believers, Hebrew Christians in the first century who saw that quote, would immediately know the story and immediately know the context. And that was that Abraham was asked to sacrifice his son to God on a mountain, which would now be known as the Temple Mount. Mount Moriah is now the Temple Mount or known as the Temple Mount in Israel today. It's a kind of a full area where the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ would take place 2,000 years after Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son, but of course God stopped him. When God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one else, or no one greater, I should say, he swore by himself. God didn't need to make an oath because God, we learn in the text we just read it, it's impossible for God to what? Lie. God is the God of truth. Truth is his very nature. If you flip that around, the devil, when he speaks a lie, speaks from his own nature, John 8, 44. For he's a liar and the father of lies. 
But God, if I could put it this way, is the father of truth. He is the God of truth. Everything he says is true. So he doesn't need to make an oath. We need to do that, right? We go into a court of law, and what do they ask us to do? They ask us to swear, sometimes on a Bible. And we raise our right hand. And and what are they saying? They want us to make a promise and guarantee it by our word. You buy something. You get a 1,700-page contract, right? Sign, sign, initial, sign, sign, initial, sign, sign. Why? Well, the lender is trying to ensure that you'll be true to your word. And some of you may have gone back and revisited things that you signed and went, rut row. <laughs> I didn't realize that paragraph said that. Because nobody expects you to read those contracts anymore. They're so long and it's amazing, you know, how much paper is before you. And not to mention the fact that you have to go to about six years of law school to understand what the person's saying in the document anyway. But these measures are taken because man's word is not so dependable. You know, if you know someone who is trustworthy and true to their word, that's a good thing. I hope and pray that that's who we are. But mankind, not so trustworthy, right? Uh, He could be fickle. He might be trustworthy. We just don't know. But God made a promise to Abraham, and no one in the universe is greater than God. So when a man or a woman makes a promise, they might say, uh, I swear to God, or I cross my heart, or maybe you got something from the Boy Scouts or whatever that you do. And that's all to try to ensure that someone believes us. But God, there's no one greater than God, so he can't swear by anybody, right? He can't take an oath by anybody higher than himself. So he swore by himself. And why would God do that? Why would God make a promise like that and take an oath when he doesn't need to? Joshua 21.45 says, Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All of them came to pass. Joshua 21.45. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For as many as may be the promises of God, in him they are yes, wherefore also by him is our amen to the glory of God through us. But when the promise was made to Abraham, especially the early promise reiterated in Genesis 22, it looked extremely bleak. The promise given to Abraham was that he would have an heir from his own body. You remember? He was married to a lady named Sarah. And when he received the promise, he lived in the land of Haran. Let's flip over to Genesis 12 just so we can get our bearings So the very first book of your Bible, Genesis chapter 12, the story of Abraham dominates these chapters. And here's what happens. Uh, Abraham, known as Abram at this time, uh, his family, he he comes from uh, one of the sons of Noah. I'm trying to remember. I think it might have been Shem. And his somewhere along the line, his parents embraced paganism. And so they uh, were into idolatry. Joshua 24 tells us that they serve the gods of the pagans. But God called to Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth 12-1 from your country, from your relatives, from your house to the land which I will show you and I will bless you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and so you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse 
and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. If you go down to verse 6 of the same chapter, so Abram now moving, and he uh, comes to Shechem. Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Moreh. So he first of all gets the promise in Haran in 12, 1 through 3. Now he's moving to Shechem. Now the Canaanite was uh, then in the land, verse 7. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants I will give this land, a reiteration of the promise. And so he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Now as time goes by, uh, Abraham, you know, he's married to Sarah. And uh, when the, the promise first comes, Abram is 75 years old. He's no spring chicken, as we might say, Right? He qualifies for many discounts at local restaurants. He gets letters from AARP. Uh, He gets those phone calls from Social Security about how you figure out and calculate and all that stuff, right? And so, (laughs) amen, we got got an amen out there. So Abraham um, is going through some stuff and he... uh, the story unfolds and, and he's taken on these kings. Uh, David shared this with us in Genesis 14. And he had to save his nephew Lot and all of that went pretty well. And he met this mysterious figure named Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is the major subject uh, starting in uh, really Hebrews chapter 5. And we are in our text right now, we're in a digression the author of Hebrews picked up the theme of Melchizedek, this mysterious Old Testament figure, and then he digressed from it in Hebrews chapter 6, and he'll pick it up in Hebrews 7 again. I would call this a glorious digression, although I would say the first part of Hebrews 6, it was a bit of a painful digression, (laughs) because we know we were in that very difficult text last time, right? Impossible to renew them to repentance, and what's that? And hopefully you got a chance to listen to that message. And so he meets this Melchizedek in 1418 of Genesis, king of Salem. There's bread and wine, and there's a a temptation for Abraham and so forth, and he overcomes it. And Abram, Abram says these words. This is 1422 of Genesis. He said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, he had an oath of his own, possessor of heaven and earth, 1423, I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours for fear you would say I made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. And then you have the names right there. Now after these things, Genesis 15, 1, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Abram, do not fear or do not fear Abram. That tells me he was probably afraid. Maybe he was battle-weary, fatigued. Maybe he revisited this promise over and over again over the years. I'm getting older. We're past the normal time of childbearing. What's going to happen? I'm sure he had questions. I'm sure there was fear, like we all experience. And God said, I'm a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, oh, Lord, what will you give me since I'm childless And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. I know you made the promise, but there's no child. And Abram said, since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man will not be your heir, 
but one who will come forth from your own body shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said to him, and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. You've been listening to We Have This Hope as an Anchor for Our Soul, Part 1 on Walk in Truth. That's Pastor Michael's teaching in Hebrews 6, 13 through 20. If you missed any part of today's program, Walk in Truth is on Apple Podcast, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and many more podcast apps. Listen for free to Pastor Michael's teachings in more books of the Bible. We would also love to hear from you. You can email Pastor Michael with your questions you may have from his teachings today, or maybe you have a question about something else, or need encouragement, or prayer. Maybe you'd like to share how Pastor Michael's teachings have affected you. You can email Pastor Michael at contact at walkintruth.com. That's contact at walkintruth.com. And thanks for reaching out. You can also find our mailing address on walkintruth.com. Remember, Walk in Truth is a listener-supported ministry. Please consider becoming a Walk in Truth partner. Your contribution helps us broadcast on this station and provide the podcast to reach more people like you with the hope of Jesus. And now we offer the Walk in Truth app as a thank you for your donation. Please consider becoming a Walk in Truth partner for at least $5 a month. Visit walkintruth.com and click donate. That's walkintruth.com. And join us tomorrow for part two of Pastor Michael's teaching in Hebrews 6, 13 through 20, called We Have This Hope as an Anchor for Our Soul. I'm Mike Massaro. On behalf of Pastor Michael Lance and Living Truth Christian Fellowship, thanks for listening to Walk in Truth, equipping you to reach out with God's truth to all people.